Welcome to episode 280 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, biohacker and author of What Win Wine. Lose weight and feel great with paleo-style meals, intermittent fasting, and wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner and author of Intermittent Fasting Transformation, the 45-day program for women to lose stubborn weight, improve hormonal health, and slow aging. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and cynthiathurlow.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this show do not constitute medical advice or treatment, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. So, pour yourself a mug of black coffee, a cup of tea, or even a glass of wine, if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of premium grass-fed, grass-finished steak tips, all for free, plus $20 off. That's right. We're talking pounds of meat for free, plus $20 off. Friends, I love meat and seafood. My favorite way to get it is ButcherBox. It has been for years, and it's one of those things where I just sort of become more and more obsessed the more I use it. Especially with all the greenwashing that's going on today with meat and seafood, there's a lack of transparency, it can be hard to know what you're actually getting, and it can be expensive. ButcherBox addresses all of that. By directly partnering with farmers and fishermen, ButcherBox cuts out the middleman of the grocery store and directly delivers delicious meat and seafood straight to your door. And they have the highest standards. Their salmon, for example, is wild caught. Their beef is 100% grass fed and 100% grass finished. Their chicken is free range and organic, and it all tastes delicious. I love their chicken, love their meat, love their seafood. They have amazing scallops as well. And you can really find the collection of food that you want that works for you and your family. They have curated boxes, so you can get exactly what you want as fresh as possible because yes, meat and seafood that is immediately frozen is fresher than meat that is waiting out and never frozen. That's because it's frozen at its peak of freshness. It's funny because people kind of think it would be the opposite. Like, oh, I need never frozen meat and seafood. No, 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 no. You want frozen. You want meat and seafood that was immediately frozen and then shipped to you, which is what ButcherBox does. I eat a lot of steak at restaurants. ButcherBox's fillets are divine, way better than anything I would get at a restaurant. Their other cuts are amazing as well. With their seafood, I know I can trust them that I'm actually getting what they say because yes, there is a lot of scams in the seafood industry and their chicken also tastes amazing. It's free range and organic and tastes delicious. With ButcherBox, you don't have to worry about what's for dinner and ButcherBox has an incredible offer for our audience. You can have your choice of a weeknight meal essential for free in every order for a whole year. Just go to butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use ifpodcast to choose either three pounds of organic chicken thighs, two pounds of grass-fed, grass-finished ground beef, or one pound of grass-fed, grass-finished premium steak tips plus $20 off. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash ifpodcast and use code ifpodcast to choose your free offer and get that $20 off. Butcherbox.com slash podcast with code podcast. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons 
reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 280 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Cynthia Thurlow. Hey there. Now I'm just thinking 280. Cynthia, is there something that we should do fun for episode 300? Yes. I think we need to come up with a fun like giveaway or bonus or what do you think? Jen and I, and these are really fun. Jen and I would usually do for milestone episodes, ask me anythings. So then we can just like anything goes and it's kind of like refreshing because it's not fasting related, just like life related. Those are fun. Happy to. Although it's it's funny, I think I'm starting to get inklings of things that people want us to talk about because sometimes they'll send it to me and my team on in the DMs and I'm like, please email the podcast. We can't keep track of all this stuff. Yeah, that would be a lot of fun. Yeah. So maybe we could do that and a giveaway or something. Awesome. I have another question for you. This was appropriate timing. I think, yeah, it was yesterday that you were talking to me and you were on the way to buy pet food. And I had just interviewed Dr. Karen Becker, the author of The Forever Dog. I'm super curious. What do you feed your dogs? We feed what what is considered to be, you know, grain-free, largely grain-free food. So Akana and Stella and Chewies, and there's a couple other brands that are obscenely expensive that we give our dogs. But it, it for me, it's the right decision. You know, they're both... You know, I have a dog that's 10 and one that's almost nine and they can walk minus the humidity of the summer. They normally walk four or five miles a day. So they're doing really, really well. You know, other than having yearly checkups with the vet, they rarely ever get sick. So that's worked really well for them. It drives my husband crazy because with two dogs, two doodles that have to be groomed every month and have crazy expensive dog food, it ends up it ends up being a labor of love. Like I always say, we love our dogs and this is what I feel is the best choice for them. And you know, certainly if you look at them, they're super healthy and alert and smart and active. And I always say they're a reflection of, you know, how we we perceive that, you know, their lives should be. And so they're they're a joy in our lives. But how was your interview? It was absolutely amazing. I cannot recommend her book enough. Again, it's called The Forever Dog. She talks about everybody. So many people I've had on my show, Jason Fung, Tim Spector, David Sinclair, Dom D'Agostino. Literally, even if you don't have a dog, you will learn so much about human health and longevity and health span and lifespan. It's just shocking. I mean, we think it's bad with processed foods for the human food, 
the pet food industry is, I mean, it's really shocking. Like what we're feeding our our pets and how it's affecting their health. It's garbage. It's very eye-opening. And, and what's really interesting too, is she was saying that for the book, she interviewed all these people. She would often ask them what they would feed their pets and often it would be like this awkward silence <laughs> where, where they would, you know, have a moment and think, oh, I'm feeding them, you know, probably what I shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's it's unfortunate because I got my first dog right out of college and the vet at that time recommended a brand called Yukonuba, which I thought was the best dog food in the world because I didn't know any better. And I had a Bichon Free, so I had a very small, non-shedding dog, and she was just the sweetest, sweetest dog. And I came to find out that most conventionally made animal feed or animal food is really a byproduct of grains and fillers and a lot of foods that tend to be allergenic for pets. And so it was really very interesting. And obviously I haven't had the opportunity to read her book or interview her, but I would imagine that the way that we feed our animals is in a large part comes from a place of ignorance. Like I know there's a a really wonderful Facebook group that I'm a part of where basically pet owners can ask questions of vets and the vets in that group are wonderfully gracious with their time. And whenever nutrition comes up, they are very anti-raw food. And I do occasionally do raw food for the dogs, but not often. You know, they're anti-raw food, they're anti-grain, you know, they're they're pro-grains, anti, you know, no grains, you know, and keep citing literature about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy for dogs. And it's it's been very interesting because I would imagine most veterinary veterinary specialists are like most medical trained professionals and that we get little to no nutrition, like truly get nutritional training, unless it's someone that's in the researching industry. And I would imagine it's probably no different for vets. I I would imagine based on what I know. It definitely is. She actually, that was a big part of what she talked about. And there are so many things that were just mind blowing. For example, I've been fascinated by this for a long time. And it's the fact that we have this idea often that it's not safe to feed our pets, quote, human food, like that will like injure them or that they'll only be healthy if they eat, you know, pet food. And it's like this fear based on just not based on reality, but created by the pet food industry. Do dogs not eat real food? Well, and it's, it's funny. I, so I have a Labradoodle and labs are known for being just prodigious food hounds and he will eat just about anything. Like he'll eat a sugar snap pea, he'll eat a cucumber, he'll eat a piece of meat. He would eat anything. My golden doodle is very discerning and will only eat protein. But it's really interesting to me, like when I buy them, when I when I would effectively call a treat, but it's literally like, you know, dehydrated sweet potato or it's fish skin that's been sourced from, you know, a healthy location that's the kind of treats they get. It's not flour made in biscuits and things when people think of what like what a normal treat is like. But there's so much garbage. Like even going through the grocery store, if you buy your treats in the grocery store, how many of them have canola seed oils in them and flour? And, you know, our dogs aren't meant, they're canines. They're not meant to, they're carnivorous. They're really not meant to be ingesting flour or grains in my estimation based on my research. And so my very spoiled dogs get very expensive. When I, again, using the word treat, it's like a dehydrated sweet potato stick and it's literally just sweet potato and salt. It's mind blowing. And then it, is it any wonder that these dogs are dealing with a large part of the animal population? They're overfed, they're under-exercised, they're given these you know, rancid seed oils, they're given inflammatory flour that is, should not be a part of their diet. And they're really meant to just eat meat. And maybe, you know, my vet that I had back in Northern Virginia was great. And he used to say, listen, I have no problems if you give him sweet potato, if you give him a little bit of green beans, you know, stay away from the fruit. Cooper likes blueberries every once in a while. I'll give him some blueberries, but he'll eat anything. So we have to be careful. Like he'll counter surf. He's really nice. He's eaten, like he ate a block of cheese one night when we had a party. Well, speaking to everything that you just spoke about, so... The evolutionary diet of a dog is 50% fat, 50% protein. And now the amount of carbs, like you said, so much of conventional food now is it's actually very carb rich because it's cheap 
and it's a good filler and it makes a good texture and it's just doing an awful number on their health. And then in addition to that, there's often mycotoxins in pet food. It's high in AGEs. She has a whole chapter or section about that. It's just really, really a problem. And what's also really sad, I didn't know this. Did you know that vets have the highest suicide rate of any profession? I've heard that. And I don't know if it's because they're there's not enough people going into the profession. And, and it's one of the few professions where they can actually euthanize animals as opposed to, you know, traditional kind of allopathic medicine. We do everything we can to prolong life. And veterinary medicine, you know, in conjunction with owners, they can help, you know, hasten an animal's demise. I, I don't know if it's because of, there's probably a variety of factors is what I'm trying to say, but I, I was surprised slash not surprised to learn that. I think that's a huge part of it because not only is it the, you know, the frustrations of the conventional medical system in general with being, I mean, in general, not preventative, you know, so being reactive and then coming from a model where, I think it, you know, it could be hard to address the health of these pets, but then what you said, it's the only profession where you actually, you know, euthanize. So, yeah. I couldn't deal with that. Like I, I affectionately refer to the time we will not speak of with the vet <laughs> because Cooper's 10 and we just had his yearly vet visit and he's doing well. And I told her, I said, like, we refer to it in our house as the time we will not speak of because there will be a time that we will have to have some tough conversations and, you know, the one thing about pets that if you have a pet, then you understand this. We're on borrowed time from day one. You know, we know that we're going to outlive our pets. And, you know, we have these perfect little beings for a period of time. And we really, dogs and, and cats and other types of animals really teach us to be present and to be grateful because each day is a gift. We don't know how many days we're going to have with our pets. So you have to make it count. Exactly. So I will put a link in the show notes to the interview won't be out yet, but to her book. And I just want to emphasize it's so approachable. It's again, so nuanced and sciencey and deep, but it's very comprehensive in how to navigate the pet food system and to find what works for you and your budget. So if you, you know, want to go all out and, you know, make your own, if you want to still buy conventional food, like she makes it very accessible. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. Is there anything else new with you in your world before we jump into questions? No, just scaring up to launch some programs in September. That's our our big focus for the month of August. So I have 45, which is the 45-day intermittent fasting program, and then Holistic Blueprint, which is the 12-week program that allows women to do Dutch testing and GI map and other types of hormone testing. So in my world, that's a large focus of the month of, of August. So for listeners, if they're interested in getting on the wait list, we will put links in the show notes so that you can learn more about each program. Awesome. Awesome. Shall we start off with a listener question? Absolutely. So this is from Nikki. Nikki says, Cynthia and Melanie, I know you've touched on this from time to time, but I don't remember a lot of discussion on it on any of your podcasts. If I'm wrong, please let me know. I'm pretty sure based on how my last period went that I have fibroids. Really heavy period, soaking a pad once an hour, and passing clots the size of golf balls. Prior to this, my period has always been light to moderate. Also, my stomach always looks bloated, even when the rest of my body looks pretty fit and toned. Though I understand that could also be many other things like insulin resistance, cortisol, etc. I will get it properly diagnosed, but I'd like to go into that appointment with a good understanding of possible non-invasive treatments. Because everyone I know, my mother included, who had this, ended up getting a hysterectomy which I think sounds terrifying. I know Jen mentioned using serapeptase to clear hers. And yes, Melanie, I have your supplement and just started taking it. But what else? Should I take more than one serapeptase per day? Does fasting help? What about nutrition or other supplements? Thanks all for your help, Nikki. P.S. Cynthia, I'm 40 years old. Awesome, Nikki. Well, thank you for your question. So I'll just speak briefly to the serapeptase part of it. And then I was really excited because I wanted to have this question on, but fibroids is not my forte. And Cynthia said she knew a lot about the topic, so it was perfect. But for the serapeptase, so that is one of the reasons that people will often take that supplement. So what it is, is it's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. And when you take it in the fasted state, it actually goes into your bloodstream and breaks down 
problematic proteins in your body. And so it can really help fibroids. And that is the reason that Jen started taking it and she did effectively clear it with hers. So just to answer your question about taking more than one per day, I think that's fine. I would dose up and see how you react. I personally take two per day. So you could try starting with that, but um, see how you react. You could even take more If anybody is interested, you can get it at avalonx.us and the coupon code MelanieAvalon will get you 10% off, but I will let Cynthia speak to the rest of it. Yeah, no, that's super interesting about seropeptase. So because you're 40, Nikki, you're very likely in perimenopause and what you're really speaking to is relative estrogen dominance. This is when your ovaries are producing less and less progesterone. You may not be ovulating every month. And in response to that, you have a relative estrogen dominance and more circling estrogen than progesterone. And this is super common. This actually happened to me. I did not have fibroids, but estrogen dominance is what will feed those symptoms you're experiencing, very heavy, very clotting periods. And conventional allopathic medicine will offer you options like synthetic oral contraceptives, They will offer you things like an IUD, intrauterine device, an ablation, which goes in and actually destroys the lining of the uterus, or a partial hysterectomy, which is what you mentioned your mom had gone through. I don't think any of those are necessary per se. There are definitely a lot of things that you can do proactively before you ever need to get to that point. But again, I would definitely have a conversation with your GYN or your primary care provider So estrogen dominance is a constellation of different symptoms. Again, largely, I suspect yours is related to life stage, but it can also be related to poor liver detoxification, your gut health, if you're not getting enough fiber in your diet, if you're consuming too many processed sugars. I'm sure if you're a listener to this podcast, you probably aren't. But I just mentioned that along with stress, you can even, if you err on the side of being someone that has polycystic ovarian syndrome, I just did a really great podcast with Dr. Felice Gersh on that. You can definitely check that out. You can actually get aromatization, which means you can aromatize testosterone to estrogen, which can contribute to more circulating estrogen. Even things like poor gallbladder function can also impact that. And and the other thing to think about is that we are exposed to estrogen mimicking chemicals throughout our lifetime. And I find for many women, whether it's through our personal care products or environment or food, Our perimenopausal years are really when we start to see this tipping over of a bucket. So throughout our lifetime, we've got exposure to these chemicals, and then in perimenopause, everything kind of goes haywire. So things to think about are an anti-inflammatory diet. So really thinking about, are you eating gluten? Are you eating dairy? Are you drinking too much alcohol? Are you eating too many processed sugars? There are specific herbs that we know that can be beneficial for estrogen dominance, things like turmeric and ginger, which I love, as well as supplements like chaseberry and milk thistle. Milk thistle in particular is very helpful for liver detoxification, really digging into gut health. So, you know, doing a GI map, which is a DNA-based stool test, looking at a Dutch, which is a dried urine and saliva-based test, making sure your blood sugar is properly managed. And I find for a lot of people, the lifestyle changes first and then really leaning into nutrition and then lastly supplements. And then if it's not helpful or effective, you know, seeking other options through your primary care or GYN's office, but you absolutely can navigate perimenopause. And unless you've been told you have a fibroid, obviously your GYN could do an internal examination. And then if necessary, you can do an ultrasound to look for that. But I find most estrogen dominant symptoms are improved upon by lifestyle changes first And not every woman in perimenopause needs to go on synthetic hormones, get an IUD, have an ablation or a hysterectomy if they're willing to put in the work. Obviously, fasting and eating less often can be certainly very, very helpful. And I would be interested to see how you respond to serapeptase. As Melanie mentioned, that may be very, very helpful for you. Keep us posted. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get 15% off my favorite blue light blocking glasses ever. So I am often asked, what are my favorite, quote, biohacking products? And something I truly, honestly cannot imagine my life without are blue light blocking glasses. So in today's modern environment, we are massively overexposed to blue light. It's a stimulating type of light, which can lead to stress, anxiety, headaches, and in particular, sleep issues. 
blue light actually stops our bodies from producing melatonin, which is our sleep hormone. So our exposure to blue light can completely disrupt our circadian rhythm, make it hard to fall asleep, make it hard to stay asleep, and so much more. Friends, I identify as an insomniac. I would not be able to sleep without my blue light blocking glasses. I also stay up late working and wearing blue light blocking glasses at night has made it so I can do that and still fall asleep. My absolute favorite blue light blocking glasses on the market are Bon Charge, formerly known as Blue Blocks. Bon Charge makes an array of blue light blocking glasses in all different designs so you can truly find something that fits your style and reap all of the benefits of blue light blocking. They have their clear computer glasses. You can wear those during the day, especially if you're looking at screens all day to help with anxiety, headaches, and stress. They have their light sensitivity glasses. Those are tinged with a special yellow color, scientifically proven to boost mood, and they block even more blue light. Those are great for the day or evening. And then they have their blue light blocking glasses for sleep. Those are the ones that I put on at night while working before bed. Oh my goodness, friends. It's something you truly have to experience. You put on these glasses and it's like you just tell your brain, okay, it's time to go to sleep soon. They also have amazing blackout sleep masks. Those block 100% of light with zero eye pressure. I wear this every single night and I don't know how I would sleep without it. And you can get 15% off site-wide. Just go to bondcharge.com and use the coupon code IFPODCAST to save 15%. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com with the coupon code IFPODCAST to save 15%. All right, now back to the show. Thank you. That was so overwhelmingly comprehensive and helpful. All right. So we have a question or some feedback on a question from Lucy. And the subject is my story and getting started again. And Lucy says, I am a 28-year-old female from Wales, UK. I started listening to your podcast about a year ago. When listening, I fell in love with IF and starting my journey. I started researching IF and I came across your podcast when I wanted to lose weight in January 2021. I've never been a large person, a UK size 8, but after having many infections, my metabolism basically shut down and I put on quite a bit of weight during the winter of 2020. The pandemic didn't help. Ha ha. After starting IF, I felt amazing. I started running, my skin cleared up, and I stopped having infections, and I lost two stone in weight, which is about 28 pounds. I felt I was getting intuitive with my eating and was fasting 20 hours of the day and had a four-hour eating window. Then July 2020, I suddenly started getting hungry all the time. Waking up and wanted breakfast, I never ate breakfast even before fasting, so this was strange. I remember when you said on the podcast about knowing how when your body is needing food and when it's just cravings, this wasn't cravings, and I decided to listen to my body, and I had an eight-hour window for a few days. I told myself that come Monday, I'll try and get back to my normal fast. On that Saturday, I found out I was pregnant, so I definitely think my body was giving me signs to eat for the baby. I didn't do IF during pregnancy, of course, and now my baby girl is five months old. I'm finding it hard to get back into IF. I want to do it for my health. However, as I'm off work on maternity leave, I find I'm always reaching for snacks. As Also, as I am taking the baby to playgroups, etc., the other mothers and I often go to a cafe. I don't want to be that person who doesn't go because I'm fasting, as this is the only social life I have at the moment. I can't really go and sit with just water. I don't like tea or coffee. The only thing I can think of is on these days, I adjust my window to open and close at an earlier time. Any advice on this and how I can just get started again? Thank you. And again, sorry for the long email. I love the podcast. Best wishes, Lucy. Well, Lucy, congratulations on your baby. It isn't clear if you're breastfeeding. If you are breastfeeding, I do not recommend fasting. You are feeding your own baby and you don't want to restrict your food intake. If you are not breastfeeding, and you're feeling like you're really struggling to recommit to fasting, maybe you need to just have a more relaxed feeding window. It could be that you have a 10-hour feeding window, maybe a nine-hour feeding window. I would encourage you to experiment a bit with either different types of herbal teas like green tea or black tea, or even adding things like high quality salt or cinnamon to your coffee to make it more palatable. There are compounds in bitter coffee and bitter tea that are beneficial in a fasted state. 
I myself learned to drink green tea. I'm not a coffee drinker by drinking it iced. So I would brew it, I would ice it, and then I would stick a straw in it and drink it. That was how I started doing it because there's just so many benefits. But again, it's not entirely clear if you are breastfeeding. And if you are breastfeeding, I would definitely recommend you hold off until you are no longer breastfeeding to get back to fasting. Melanie, do you have any suggestions? So first of all, echoing what you said about congrats on the baby and also the concerns about the breastfeeding or not. So I'll just answer it based on assuming that it is a time that you would be getting back to fasting and are not breastfeeding. So I like what you said about the tea and the coffee and trying different varieties. That didn't occur to me. That's actually a good idea. So I would challenge your idea, Lucy, that so when it comes to the play dates and stuff. So I think you have two options here. One, you say, I can't really go and sit with just water. You actually can go and just sit with just water. And I, I say that just because we get a lot of fear surrounding social acceptance and what people will think and will it be weird? And if people are eating or drinking coffee and I'm not, like, what will they think? But especially, it sounds like this is something that you go to regularly. So you really can go and, and, and drink water. And it might feel weird at first, but especially if this is something that you're doing a lot, people will adapt. And it's really a matter of how you feel about the situation and, and you know what makes you feel good in your body rather than what other people think. And that's just my personal opinion. And I also think it opens up a lot of freedom to life when we don't have that concern and that anxiety surrounding us with like the fasting or the eating window. And maybe this is in part just me having done intermittent fasting for so long and being so overwhelmingly concerned about in the beginning and having a lot of anxiety about it. And now I'm just like, I don't care. (laughs) So maybe it takes a, maybe you get to a point where you're over it and you're like, I'm just going to do what makes me feel good. So for example, I went to a party last night and there was a dinner and I mean, I didn't eat the dinner because I mean, it was definitely not food that would have made me feel well and nobody thought anything of it. Like, it's fine. Like, (laughs) I think people are a lot more concerned with what other people are thinking about them than they're thinking about you for better or worse. So that's my one thing. And then the second thing was she was saying, could I adjust my window to open and close at an earlier time? And yeah, you could do that too. Like that's, totally an option. So I think there's a lot of options here. And then as far as getting back into the fasting, so again, you find yourself always reaching for the snacks. A few different things. I would look at the environmental cues surrounding that because I know you're you're off work, so you're at home, so you're more it's easier for you to reach those snacks. So what sort of barriers can you put in place to change that habit? You know, what sort of things are you reaching for? And if there's snacks, and this this would be an, an easy thing to address if this is the case, and I don't know if this is the case. This might be hard to address if these are snacks that you have in the house for other people, but if these are snacks that literally you would just have for snacks and they're not actually a part of anybody's meal in the house, just don't have them in the house. Like, Make your environment as suitable as possible to you to encourage the habits that you want to have. You can start putting in some systems that you follow. So, you know, maybe when you're eating in the house, you only eat at mealtime in the kitchen. And and I know it sounds interesting because it sounds so simple to say, you know, just don't do it. Like, how can that be the answer? But it's sort of the answer because you can really exist in one of two places. You can exist in a mindset of the bright line eating concept, or you can exist in a world of where you have a system and you have boundaries and you have lines and it's just yes or no, on or off. So you do eat snacks or you don't eat snacks. Or you can exist in a world where you're fighting that and you maybe eat snacks and you try not to eat snacks. And and that mindset shift, I think, can be huge. So if you can tell yourself, I don't eat snacks, then you can stop yourself from even engaging in it because you're not going to have that debate each time of whether or not you're going to do it. I actually... I always reference this book. And again, I wish it had a different title because it makes it sound like it's only about binge eating, which it's not. But I really like Glenn Livingston's book, Never Binge Again, as far as it's really about engaging with the 
voice in our head that wants to encourage us to have some any sort of eating behavior that we don't want to be engaging in and kind of a reframe for how to address that. So I really like that book and I've had him on my show, so I can put a link to that in the show notes as well. So it's funny because Cynthia's answer, I think this is great because we are giving a lot of different perspectives because, you know, Cynthia's answer, which I also agree with is maybe you just need to be more flexible with the window. So I think that's great. On the flip side, if you do want to try to stick to a stricter eating window, I do think there are steps you can take to try to do that. And it's really just a matter of finding which approach for you right now is what you want to be doing. Do you have thoughts about that? No, I think Glenn's book is such an incredible resource. I too have been fortunate to connect with him. And I think so much of our conversations in our heads, I I reflect back on when my kids were little and certainly in the the days of being on a maternity leave and and your days are a little more isolating because your kids are so dependent on you and you know they're napping and they're in diapers and you know your mommy interaction might be the only interaction you have with an adult during the day if your spouse is working outside the home and so it can be very isolating and i think now at a different stage of life like my kids are older and and i just don't have the bandwidth to even think about those things but i re- i remember thinking a great deal very thoughtfully about a lot of different health-related issues at that time. So give yourself grace. And Melanie certainly provided a lot of really good resources for you know books and interviews that we've done with people that are leaders in this space. And I would definitely lean into that. I think you're asking a lot of great and very thoughtful questions. I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking this. It's something that I haven't had that experience of being a mom and going through this and being on the flip side. So I'm really speaking from a place of no experience. So I imagine it's probably a lot more harder than I imagine. So I'm glad, Cynthia, you can bring that perspective to it as well. But either way, you got this, Lucy. Absolutely. All right. Shall we go to our next question? Next question is from Nikki. Subject is protein and autophagy. Hi, Melanie and Cynthia. Welcome to the podcast, Cynthia. I'm excited about this new dynamic. So I'm wondering how much protein the process of autophagy generates. Melanie, we have talked about this before in your Facebook group, but that was a while back. So I'm hoping maybe there's been more research on the subject. And I'd love to get Cynthia's thoughts as well, especially as you're both big proponents of getting enough protein as I am. The two of you, along with other experts like Rob Wolf, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, Vanessa Spina, Dr. Ted Neiman, all land somewhere in the vicinity of recommending roughly one gram of protein per pound of ideal body weight. Here's my question. How much should the ramp up of autophagy due to intermittent fasting affect your protein goals? In other words, how many grams of protein does autophagy generate? I use quotation marks because I don't know if I'm even thinking about it the right way. If we fast for 18 to 20 hours, for example, we have a lot of autophagy happening. Shouldn't that mean we don't need to eat quite as much protein? But if that's true, how much? Is this even possible to answer? Your thoughts would be greatly appreciated. All right. So this is actually, this may be my most favorite question I've ever received (laughs) for this show. I love this question. I have thought about this a lot. And unfortunately, I have no idea. And the amount of time, I, I spent so much time trying to find an answer and I could find nothing. I'm going to keep looking. I also reached out to people I thought might know the answer authorities, authors I've had on the biohacking podcast, and nobody knew the answer. So I just wanted to include it to say that it's something I've thought about. I don't know. I do wonder though, if part of this, and this is just me hypothesizing and not knowing really what's happening, but there's been you know, quite a few studies on fasting and muscle mass, very favorable for the effects on muscle retention. I mean, I don't know, but I do wonder if if this is, you know, involved a little bit, but it's a really good question. And if anybody sees or hears at any point the answer to this question, please let me know. And if I ever have the honor of interviewing Peter Atia, I'm going to ask him this because I would love to hear his thoughts on it. Even though he seems to be, I don't know, not as much in the fasting. His uh, views on fasting are very interesting these days. Do you have any thoughts at all? I mean, I, nothing that is conclusive. I, I think the longer I fast and the more research that I look at, 
the more I'm a proponent of just remaining open-minded, the possibility that sometimes we don't have the answers. I am definitely very aligned with Ted Naiman in that I'm not a huge fan of long fasts, especially for people who are at goal weight or healthy weights. And so, you know, it's, it's impossible to measure autophagy at this time, unfortunately. And I think there just needs to be more research, you know, whether or not that's going to be information that we have accessible to us in the near or the long term. I'm not sure, but it's certainly a great question. Thanks, Nikki. I'm actually really surprised. I thought, I'm sure somebody studied this. I couldn't find it. And I don't know if it's that I can't, because for people who for people who go down the rabbit hole of PubMed and stuff, sometimes when you're looking for an answer, it takes a while to figure out the keywords that you should be Googling to find it. And then once you find the keywords, it like opens up this whole world that answers your question because you have to figure out how people are talking about it in the clinical literature. And so I was like, maybe if I can just find the right keywords, I'll be able to find the studies, but I found nothing. So I'm going to keep looking, but it's a really interesting thing to ponder. Absolutely. All right. So we have a question from Dana. The subject is more protein. And Dana says, hi, ladies. I asked this question on Facebook and Cynthia asked me to send it here for many more people to see the answer. Cynthia, can you please direct me to where to find macros for my lifestyle? I have Hashimoto's in remission 10 years, age 64, 5 to 10 more pounds to lose, gluten and dairy-free, IF approximately a five-hour window for two years, an active lifestyle. I tend to feel better on low versus high fat. I did strict clean keto, less than 20 grams of carbs for one year a few years back, and it really messed up my thyroid. My body seems to love carbs. Thank you. Thanks for all the things you do. Dana, thank you for your question. I, I would say, you know, first and foremost, there's there's no way to provide a macro breakdown for every single listener because there's so many different variables. You're obviously in menopause. I love that you're already doing gluten and dairy-free. That's certainly very helpful, especially keeping Hashimoto's, which for anyone who's listening who's not familiar with that, that is autoimmune hypothyroidism, so underactive thyroid. The first things that kind of really stand out to me is, are you varying your fasting window? I talk a great deal about this in my book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation. I love that you're active and that you've determined that you do better on low versus high-fat foods. I generally don't recommend anyone do sustained ketosis, meaning someone doing strict keto for a long period of time. I do think that we need a carb cycle, if we're that low, meaning you want to kick yourself out of ketosis. And this is something that I try to document as much as I can on IG stories, examples of meals that I'll put together on days when I'm lifting heavy, when I will increase my carbohydrate intake and getting carbs from you know low glycemic berries, maybe I'm having squash or sweet potato, et cetera. So I would encourage you to vary what you're doing. I don't think anyone should do the same fasting window every single day, 24-7, I do encourage you to adjust your carbohydrate intake based on your physical activity. And I would definitely encourage you to, you know, vary what you're doing. You know, I think that it's certainly super important to be doing strength training to make sure you're getting high quality sleep. High quality sleep is if you're not, you know, measuring it on an oar or a whoop band, waking up rested, having plenty of energy, managing your stress, all of which are very, very important and really focusing in on a nutrient-dense whole foods diet. So protein-centric diet, uh, 100 grams a day, is what you want to aim for. So more protein in that in that five-hour window, because you could be that you're chronically under-eating if you're just having one meal in that five-hour feeding window. I hope that helps. How about you, Melanie? Yeah, I, <laughs> I agree with everything that you said. Something I'm really curious for me personally is, at least right now, because I haven't, you know, I haven't hit perimenopause. I haven't hit menopause and I have done, you know, a strict keto diet. And for me personally, I felt a lot better, especially with intermittent fasting, doing a high carb, lower fat diet with intermittent fasting. And what I'm really curious about is when you're at an older age, like with perimenopause or menopause, this approach of having more carbs can that be a metabolic fix for most people? Or am I going to hit menopause, for example, and then not be able to do my high carb, low fat anymore? But I do find that I think a lot of people get in these restrictive 
mindsets where they're doing a lot of fasting and they're doing a lot of keto. And like Dana says, they might experience thyroid problems or just not, or even not the weight loss that they want. And they actually find a benefit when they do bring back the carbs. And so I think it's great that Dana is intuitive with her body and realizes that her body loves carbs. I do think it's important to when it's carbs, there's different types of carbs. So definitely finding the right type of carbs that work for you. And I know she's literally asking us how to find the right macros that would work, but I would also encourage her to, if she is working in the carb paradigm, she might do better with, you know, starches, for example, or she might do better with more like fruit-based carbs. Like for me, I do so well with fruit. Starches, not so much. If I do starches, my blood sugars are high. Like I don't feel good. And it's really, really interesting. So it's something where she wants us to direct how to find the right macros, but it's something she just literally has to test for herself. Like we can't know what's going to work better for her. I do think it's important for a lot of people to lose the carb fear because I think a lot of people have carb fear. I think it's unfortunate because I cannot tell you how many people are paranoid. And I and I remind people that you know there's different types of carbohydrates, like a processed carb, like bread or pasta is very different than having a root vegetable or a tart apple or, you know, a small orange, very, very different. And depending on whether or not you're insulin sensitive, and really the only way to know that is you need some lab work done, you could get a glucometer or a continuous glucose monitor, knowledge is power. And I find more often than not, women are insulin resistant, perhaps even unknowingly if they're not particularly overweight, and they have no idea what the net impact of certain food choices are. And it could be as unique as each one of us. I talk very openly about the fact I can eat tropical fruits without any trouble, but if I eat a plantain, my blood sugar spikes. And I, it doesn't matter how I eat it. I've tried many different variations. I just don't eat plantains now. But I think that this requires more information, like really having a conversation with your internist, your primary care provider, getting some baseline labs. I always say, get that fasting insulin, get the fasting glucose, get inflammatory markers. The other thing that I didn't mention, Dana, is that depending on whether or not you're taking hormone replacement therapy, that can impact your insulin sensitivity as well. We know estrogen is an insulin sensitizing hormone along with a little bit of progesterone can be very helpful, not only for your thyroid, but also for insulin sensitivity. So a lot to unpack here, but hopefully we've given you some things to, to think about and consider. But carb fear is a huge problem. I agree with you, Melanie. Next, we have a question from Angela. Subject is IF and gargling saltwater and or mouthwash. Hello, ladies. I've been intermittent fasting since February of 2019 and will get a bad taste or smelly breath. I try to drink water throughout the day and the peppermint drops you've mentioned in the podcast definitely help. But if it's related to bacteria, I'd like to gargle with salt water or mouthwash, and I'm concerned it will break my fast. On a side note, I go for regular teeth cleanings every three to four months to help with wine and coffee stains, and I haven't had a cavity in quite a while. I love the IF lifestyle, and it suits me well. I normally have a four-hour window, but I'm more relaxed on the weekend, but we usually maintain 14 to 16 hours of clean fasting on weekends. Thanks for everything. I really enjoy all of the podcasts and listen to them over again. Awesome. Well, thank you, Angela, for your question. This is perfect timing. So I actually interviewed last week the co-founder of a company called Bristle. Did I tell you about Bristle, Cynthia? No. Mm -mm. Oh my goodness. My new obsession. So they're so cool. It was so amazing to connect with the co-founder. I was blown away by the science that's going into this. So they provide an oral microbiome test and it's like a spit kit, a saliva test, super easy to do. You send it off and then you get a profile of the oral microbiome in your mouth. And they give you the raw data of all the strains in your mouth, but then they also group it by how you compare to healthy people bacteria-wise when it comes to issues like halitosis, which is bad breath, like Angela's speaking of, also cavities, gum inflammation, and also gut inflammation. Then they make personalized recommendations for how to address it. And then you can retest. And so like the recommendations they list, they basically list like specific ingredients or even oral probiotics that might be beneficial. So it's super cool. It might be a cool resource for Angela to try to maybe see what's going on. 
And so you can go to melanieavalon.com slash bristle. That's B-R-I-S-T-L-E. And the coupon code melanieavalon will get you 15% off site-wide. And this is super amazing. It was just going to be 15% off for the one-time kit, but they said they would give it to me for the subscription, which is super amazing because the subscription is already discounted. So you can get 15% off on top of that. So I highly recommend that. But to go to Angela's specific question, so gargling with salt water or mouthwash. So salt water, zero concern about that breaking your fast. Mouthwash, more iffy. It depends on the ingredients in the mouthwash. That said, you're not swallowing the mouthwash, so you're not having that effect. But we do know that the flavors can have an effect on insulin and and some mouthwashes are sweet. (sighs) I've been trying so hard to find a mouthwash that's not sweet because I had one, I had one that I really, really liked. It was Desert Essence Prebiotic Plant-Based Brushing Rinse. Honestly, I don't know if they're just using that word prebiotic because it's a keyword. Like (laughs) I was looking at the ingredients and I was like, I'm not really sure you know, if this is actually a prebiotic, but maybe it is. And I probably should have asked this when I interviewed Bristol. So I think I might send them a follow-up email and ask them. I loved it because it was so minty, not sweetened. It never gives me the perception because I'll use it during the day. It doesn't give me the feeling or the perception at all that I'm breaking my fast. They've stopped. I don't know if they're stopping making it. It's really hard for me to find now. So I'm like on the hunt to find another one that I really like. But long story short, my opinion on mouthwash, and I'll be super curious to hear Cynthia's thoughts because we've talked about this topic a lot in the show, but I haven't heard Cynthia's thoughts on it, is I wouldn't overwhelmingly stress about it. I would find a mouthwash that doesn't taste sweet and you know super flavored, and I wouldn't stress about it. Like When it comes to fasting, I think there are things... <laughs> There are things to be really concerned about, like putting cream in your coffee. And then there are things that I think aren't as big of a deal. Like, are you finding a minty mouthwash? Those are my thoughts on the mouthwash. Do you have thoughts? Well, you know, I I interviewed the CEO of Primal Life Organics, so Trina Felber, who's a fellow advanced practice nurse, and we will link this in the comments, the show notes, excuse me. She talks a great deal about you know, we have an oral microbiome, we have our gut microbiome, we have a vaginal microbiome. And what effectively what mouthwashes do is they disrupt the oral microbiome. So I don't use any mouthwash products and generally recommend that we avoid them unless it's something very specific that's been designed that is not going to disrupt the oral microbiome. And as someone who is completely anal retentive about my teeth. (laughs) This is something that, you know, even when I go to my dentist who has a clean practice, I don't get fluoride. I don't get mouthwash there. I mean, we have these, it's a negotiation, but I follow Trina's advice very closely. Again, she's another advanced practice nurse. And I find that things like salt water and gargling are actually great. It's not only great for you know, stimulating vagal tone and, you know, your vagus nerve is this longest nerve in our body. And it is very important for heart rate variability. It taps us into the parasympathetic, which is the rest and repose side of our autonomic nervous system. And so I always encourage, you know, gargling, humming, things like that. But I would avoid mouthwash unless you know it is, it is not comprised of products that are going to kill off beneficial bacteria in the mouth. So I'm really glad you brought that up because I think it's a really important nuance to discuss. And it's another reason that I really like Bristle because I think before interviewing Bristle, I was very black and white about it. Like, you know, we shouldn't be having any of these compounds that wipe out things for that very reason. And I and I still lean heavily towards that. That said, reading the research from Bristle. If you do this test, some people have pathogenic strains in their mouth that actually might benefit from a temporary short-term approach with certain mouthwashes that have certain ingredients that might target that bacteria. And it's interesting because one of the studies that they have, and by the way, the, the Bristle blog is great. If you have any questions about oral health and the oral microbiome and all of this, they have blog posts about everything and they're ridiculously nuanced and they look at all of the studies. And I feel personally that they're pretty not biased when it comes to their agenda and their goals. So like there's a really, really fascinating study where they were looking at 
the effects of a beneficial probiotic on restoring beneficial bacteria populations in the mouth. And it actually had a more favorable effect if they first, quote, wiped out the oral native population with these certain ingredients and then had the probiotic compared to just having the probiotic. I don't know. I think the mouth is like the beginning of a massive frontier that I think should probably be as important as gut health. I and mean, we're just not talking about it. In general, I do think people are probably doing more damage than not by having these antiseptic mouthwashes, just you know, wiping out everything all the time. So I think it needs to be a more measured approach and a more informed approach. And that's why I really like bristle, for example, because then you can see, do I have pathogenic bacteria that I potentially need to be addressing compared to if, because if you don't, then you, you know, definitely shouldn't be having those ingredients. If you do, it might be something to think about and you know, what approach are you going to take to address it? So I'm just very excited about this topic and what we continue to learn in the future. Yeah. I, I think, you know, for me, the understanding that there are these different microbiomes in the body and they all impact one another. So if you have a lot of dental caries or have a lot of gingivitis or a lot of mouth issues that can impact the health of your gut microbiome, your gut microbiome can also be impacted by your vaginal microbiome. I mean, it's all interrelated. And as someone that's, you know, at a different life stage, it's something that suddenly I've become very interested in. Like as an example, my husband, from the time that I met him 20 years ago, always used Listerine mouthwash. And to him, having his mouth feel tingly was a sign that it was clean. And boy, was he disappointed to learn he was actually killing off beneficial bacteria in his mouth. And so I've got him, him completely weaned from that habit, but he misses to this day. He misses that feeling, that tingling in his mouth. And so obviously, if Melanie and I come across products that allow us to not kill off the beneficial bacteria, we'll definitely make sure we pass those along as well. One last oral health related question for you. Oh, wait, before that, Cynthia, you're talking about the vaginal microbiome and how these things can affect each other. There was a really interesting study sort of recently. I don't know. I, I say that a lot. It was probably a few months ago looking at SIBO. I don't know if you saw this because we often think that SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is from colonic bacteria and the colon migrating up to the small intestine, which very likely may be. It was actually positing that it in part might be the oral, quote, bad strains from the oral microbiome migrating down. So it's really interesting. Yeah. Well, and it's all interrelated. That's what most people aren't talking about. It's not like there's an ecosystem in the gut that doesn't communicate with the rest of the body at all. Yeah. Hi, friends. I'm about to tell you how to get 10% off my new magnesium supplement. Magnesium is such a crucial mineral in the body. It's involved in over 600 enzymatic processes. Basically, everything that you do requires magnesium, including creating energy from your food, turning it into ATP in the mitochondria, boosting your antioxidant system. Magnesium has been shown to help with the creation of glutathione, regulating your blood sugar levels, affecting nerve health, muscle recovery, muscle contractions, supporting cardiovascular health and blood pressure, aiding sleep and relaxation, and so much more. It's estimated that up to two-thirds of Americans do not get the daily recommended levels of magnesium. And on top of that, magnesium deficiencies can often be silent because only 1% of magnesium is actually in our bloodstream. So that might not be reflective of a true magnesium deficiency. Our modern soils are depleted of magnesium. We're not getting it in our diet. That's why it can be so crucial to supplement with magnesium magnesium daily. I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market and that is what magnesium 8 is. It contains 8 forms of magnesium in their most absorbable forms so you can truly boost your magnesium levels. It comes with the cofactor methylated B6 to help with absorption as well as chelated manganese because magnesium can actually displace manganese in the body. My Avalon X supplements are free of all problematic fillers including rice which is very very common in a lot of supplements including some popular magnesium supplements on the market. It's tested 
tested multiple times for purity and potency and to be free of all common allergens, as well as free of heavy metals and mold. And it comes in a glass bottle to help prevent leaching of toxins into our bodies and the environment. Friends, I wanted to make the best magnesium on the market and that is what this magnesium is. You can get magnesium eight at avalonx.us and use the coupon code MelanieAvalon to get 10% off your order. That code will also work on all my supplements, including my first supplement that I made, Serapeptase. You guys love Serapeptase, a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm that breaks down problematic proteins in your body and can help allergies, inflammation, wound healing, clear up your skin, clear brain fog, even reduce cholesterol and amyloid plaque. All of this is at avalonx.us. That coupon code Melanie Avalon will also get you 10% off site-wide from my amazing partner, MD Logic Health. For that, just go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. You can also get on my email list for all of the updates. That's at avalonx.us slash email list. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Do you do oil pulling? No. I do tongue scraping and then I have Primal Life Organics tooth powder and like a tooth serum. And then I have their, it's like a tooth whitening product. They don't have a mouthwash, right? Mm-mm. I'm on the hunt because I have an oral breath fixation and I, I'm on the hunt to find, I really liked that one I was using and the fact that they're not making it anymore makes me so sad. I'm paying an arm and a leg to like, because you know on Amazon, they'll have like the last few bottles from like third party sellers. The amount of money I'm paying for this mouthwash because <laughs> I'm trying to like get all the last bottles. <laughs> You're like, I must have them all. I know. It's bad. All right. So I think we have time for one more question. This is from Barbara. The subject is over 70 women and IF. And Barbara says, I'm very interested in IF. I need to lose 80 pounds at least. I scrolled through all your success stories. Any stories you've heard of 72 plus year old women who have had joint replacements who have lost their weight with IF? I love these questions where I haven't heard Cynthia's specific answer yet. It's like I'm listening to the podcast. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for your question, Barb. I would say first and foremost, there's a lot of things that can impact significant weight loss. And so I would make sure that you have a conversation with your primary care provider or internist, because if you're taking any medications right now for blood pressure or insulin resistance or cholesterol, you may need adjustments. But I've had many menopausal women who have had significant weight loss improvement or have, you know that have been struggling with weight loss re- resistance in conjunction with intermittent fasting and changing their diet. So to say one without the other is really putting you at a disadvantage. So eating less often combined with an anti-inflammatory diet, and that could look like not eating bread, not eating pasta. Maybe you're getting carbohydrates from other sources. But if you have more than 80 pounds to lose, I would want to combine that with, I know you mentioned that you had some joint replacements. So I'm not sure if you can do water aerobics where you're being taught by an instructor who is knowledgeable about you know, women that have had joint replacements, it'll be gentle to your knees, maybe your hips and your shoulders, you know, finding ways to be as active as possible, along with high quality sleep, and managing your stress, because there's no one in the past two years who hasn't had more issues with higher amounts of stress than usual. When it comes to deciding what fasting window is appropriate for you, if you are coming from a methodology where you are consuming three meals a day and snacks, the kind of way that I walk women through this is you stop snacking as number one. That will force you to restructure your meals. Even if you're just having two meals in your day, it's going to force you to increase your protein. It's going to, I'm going to encourage you to reduce the amount of carbohydrate in your diet. I'm not saying anti-carb, but getting your carbs from non-starchy vegetables, salad, arugula, broccoli, cauliflower, and then adding in healthy fats as appropriate is really a great way to go and to not eat from dinner to breakfast. That's the next step. But I would absolutely positively encourage you to have a conversation with your internist, your primary care provider, your NP, whomever it is that you see before you engage in intermittent fasting, just to make sure they may need to monitor you more closely. If you're on blood pressure medications or diabetes medications so that they can determine if they need to make adjustments in those medications, but definitely keep us posted. Melanie, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah. Just the only thing I would add is I'm so fascinated by 
the trajectory of aging and how, and I, and I remember how you talk about this in your book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation, which everybody should get. (laughs) And you talk about how fasting can be for older women, maybe safer, like when you're in your menstrual cycle years and your fertility years that, you know, it can be more of an issue with over fasting, but that when you're older, that's a little bit less of an issue. Am I saying that correctly? Absolutely. What I am so fascinated by is the dichotomy of that coupled with, on the flip side, the increased need for protein when you are older. Even people in the low protein camp, like vegan people in Walter Longo, even they say when you are older that there's definitely an increased protein need after, I think I think they usually say after age 60, maybe. I'd have to double check the, the exact age. So it's this interesting nuance where, yes, fasting can be very helpful and beneficial and even easier and even potentially, quote, safer. I'm not a, a medical doctor, but trying to communicate that concept with you also need more protein. So I think the nuance of that is really important in that, yes, you can do the fasting to lose weight, but you've got to be getting adequate protein. And so you've got to do an approach that will ensure that you get adequate protein. Yeah. And I I would imagine, I mean, this is probably the norm is just about everyone listening, unless they know otherwise, is chronically under eating protein. And protein intake in particular for those that are middle-aged and, you know, even older than 65, we know that our protein needs increase substantially because we we don't break it down as effectively. And so we we have to almost overbolus ourselves. And, and most of the patients that I've taken care of over the last 20 years that are dealing with weight loss resistance or obesity or, or being overweight and just struggling in those areas, they're not eating enough protein. So protein is satiating, protein helps with muscle protein synthesis, but in the context of a young woman who has, you know, 80 pounds to lose and is very interested in intermittent fasting, I I would encourage you to take, you know, little steps. You don't have to do anything drastic, just, you know, not even snacking every day, not eating between dinner and breakfast can have a huge net impact on weight loss resistance. Exactly. I'm very glad that we're so aligned on on this concept. Absolutely. Also, I'm super excited that we got five listener questions in to make up for last week where we had one listener question. It's all about balance, listeners. That's what we're always striving for balance. Yes. So that's an average of three questions per episode, which I think is probably our average. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go. If you would like to submit your own questions for the show, you can directly email questions at iapodcast.com or you can go to iapodcast.com and you can submit questions there. These show notes will be at iapodcast.com slash episode 280. Those show notes will have a full transcript and links to everything that we talked about. So definitely check that out. And then you can follow us on Instagram. We are iapodcast. I am Melanie Avalon. And Cynthia is Cynthia underscore Thurlow underscore. All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. Anything from you, Cynthia, before we go? No, keep the questions coming. I mean, we appreciate that we're getting so many because it allows us to keep the podcast really nicely organized. But don't feel like there, there's there's no topic that's off, you know, that we're we're not willing to face and and chat about. So don't feel at all uncomfortable. There's probably 20 other people that have the same exact questions and maybe don't have the nerve to ask it. So nothing is off limits. Exactly. Thank you for saying that. I could not agree more. All right. Well, this has been so great and I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, everything we discussed on this show does not constitute medical advice and no patient-doctor relationship is formed. If you enjoyed the show, please consider writing a review on iTunes. We couldn't do this without our amazing team. Administration by Sharon Merriman. Editing by Podcast Doctors. Show notes and artwork by Brianna Joyner. Transcripts by Speech Docs. And original theme composed by Leland Cox and recomposed by Steve Saunders. See you next week.